Welcome to Hollowed to Hallowed Ground, the 1999 Pecos Repatriation, brought to you by Pecos National Historical Park and KSFR Public Radio. This podcast was created in cooperation with and has been approved by the Pueblo of Jemez Tribal Administration. My name is Charlotte Gravelin, and I am a park ranger at Pecos National Historical Park in Pecos, New Mexico. Pecos National Historical Park is in northern New Mexico, about a 30-minute drive east of Santa Fe. Located in the upper Pecos River Valley on the edge of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains and the Great Plains, it is a land of pinyon pine and juniper trees, with the Pecos River and Glorieta Creek running through it. The area has plentiful wood for building and heating and a great diversity of plants and animals. This diversity has attracted people to the area for thousands of years, from the time of the hunter-gatherers to present-day hikers, fly fishers, and others looking to experience nature. Archaeologists have identified semi-sedentary agriculturalists living in the valley around 800 to 900 years ago. Starting in the 1200s, 50 to 100 room towns called Pueblos were established along the Pecos River and Glorieta Creek. The Pecos people practiced agriculture, focusing on corn, beans, and squash, and made beautiful pottery and textiles. Construction of Pecos Pueblo began in the early 1300s, and by the 1400s, those living in the smaller nearby Pueblos came together to live at Pecos Pueblo. Pecos was a major trade center in the indigenous world, with tribal nations coming from the Great Plains to the east and other Pueblo nations coming from the Rio Grande Valley to the west to trade goods. Macaw feathers from Central America, buffalo hides and meat from the Great Plains, flint from the Alabates Quarry in Texas, and shells from California and the Gulf of Mexico have all been found by archaeologists at Pecos. Being a major trade center made them a powerful Pueblo, and the Pecos were known for their many warriors. In 1540, the first Spaniards came to the upper Pecos Valley. These first Spaniards were conquistadors looking for precious metals, and when they didn't find them, they returned to Mexico. Then in 1598, the first permanent Spanish settlers arrived in northern New Mexico, led by the first Spanish governor of New Mexico, Juan de Añate. The Spanish brought many new things to New Mexico, including horses, sheep, cattle, pigs, and old world crops like wheat. They brought metal in the form of tools, weapons, and armor. They also brought European diseases and the Catholic religion. The Franciscan religious order established missions at many of the pueblos in New Mexico with the aim of converting the native population to Christianity. On the secular side, the Pueblo people were taxed and forced to labor for the Spaniards. In 1680, Pecos rebelled against the Spaniards alongside other northern New Mexico pueblos during the Pueblo Revolt. They pushed the Spanish out of northern New Mexico, 
tore down the mission churches and reclaimed their lands for 12 years. When the Spanish returned in 1692, they rebuilt the churches and Spanish settlements grew. Pecos Pueblo continued to decline in population over the next century. They were faced with fierce raiding from Comanches, drought and famine, the loss of agricultural lands to Spanish settlers, and the continued impacts of European diseases. In 1838, the last Pecos people living at the Pueblo left their homes and joined Jemez Pueblo to the west. Hollowed to Hallowed Ground is a story in three parts. In this first episode, we explore how Pecos Pueblo was, quote, discovered, rediscovered, by archaeologists in the early 20th century. In the second, we discuss the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and how it provided legal support for the Pueblo of Jemez to have the individuals and associated funerary objects excavated by archaeologists return to them. In the third and final episode, we hear the story of how those individuals and associated funerary objects made the long journey home. Hollowed to Hallowed Ground is the story of one of the largest repatriations of Native American individuals since the 1990 passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. The Hundred Year Saga is a story of loss, cooperation, and hope. These episodes were created using excerpts from interviews conducted with those who played a role in the 1999 repatriation, including members of the Pueblo of Jemez, former staff of the Robert S. Peabody Museum for Archaeology at Phillips Andover Academy, staff of the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University, and staff of Pecos National Historical Park. Throughout Hollowed to Hallowed Ground, we rely on oral histories passed down over generations, written historical sources, as well as archaeological findings to tell the story. In this episode, we explore the archaeological work that has occurred at Pecos Pueblo and in the upper Pecos Valley, particularly the work of Alfred Kidder. In July of 2021, Second Lieutenant Governor Kurt Mora of Jemez Pueblo kicked off our project with a welcome speech in Toa, the language spoken by both the Pecos and the Jemez people.
Ake Second Lieutenant Governor Mora explained the speech for us. Now it's kind of a challenge to do this speech because because oh, yeah. it's not really I guess uh, well the, our speeches are um, pretty formal and, and there's a I don't want to call it normal procedure and how you do it but you know this this kind of happening is kind of it's rare and so trying to <laughs> trying to think of how to incorporate you know how what happened and how we how we've gotten here so the speech kind of talked about. Um, in the past years that uh, current previous administrations had to deal with this and, and it finally happened and so and I also had to talk about why we're doing this in my speech and so that's kind of what I reiterated. To this day, the second lieutenant governor at Jemez Pueblo is also known as the Pecos governor. The position is appointed annually, like the other governorships, and the duties include maintaining a connection to Pecos traditions as well as with the physical site at Pecos National Historical Park. Joshua Madalena, a three-term Jemez governor and current tribal councilman, shared the origins of the connection between Pecos and Jemez during our interview. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Joshua Madalena. Uh, I'm a uh, three-term uh, uh, governor, served as governor three times in 2010, 2012, and 2014. Served as lieutenant governor in 2004 <laughs> and 2008, and uh, served as a war captain in 2000. And uh, currently, uh, I am on the tribal council, uh, and also have a, a job, a regular job, I'm the executive director for uh, Five Sandoval Indian Pueblos Incorporated and uh, serve uh, directly uh, uh, five Pueblos that are under the consortium and uh, and the other uh, 
Southern Pueblos uh, that I kind of somewhat directly and indirectly serve services as well. So my name in Jemez, Pecos, uh, is Peilisei, uh, is my birth name, and I am Ginwawa. I am of the Oak Clan. Religiously, you know, how we talk about was Pecos is a part of Jemez. Pecos did their migration 50 years before Jemez did their name migration. Pecos are the, a group of, of Jemez. Today you would kind of call it like a clan system. We were told that we didn't have a clan system beginning of time of Jemez. So, but the Pecos group of people were the ones that did the reconnaissance into this area. So they were supposed to find a main location for the 20,000 Hamas people coming. So instead of them locating where the eagle is at, they kind of lost track of the area, of the region. So they made a mistake by following the San Cre de Cristo and made that move into the south. So when the Hamas people arrived here, you know, where's our, where's our family? So eventually they were able to find the Pecos people, but they had already established a very solid village. So on the east, so accustomed to the surroundings and the area territory. So the Hamas we established here, and we had been coming to this area prior to the main migration up in the Hamas because of the eagle. Um, so eventually when we moved here, you know, we didn't find the Pecos until eventually some of our our uh, uh, war societies went out looking, did their own reconnaissance, where did they go? You know, we need to go find them. So they eventually found them. So communication has always been in existence since then. Uh, so that's how we're related. And that was, the relationships was reinforced um, in 1838 when Pecos and the surviving people, families, grandpas, grandmothers, cousins came to Hamas uh, to, to seek refuge until they repopulated and could, then could go back. So, so when they came to Hamas, you know, for them to repopulate, you know, they had relationships and then the population increased. So with that in mind, uh, they went back, uh, I believe what was told was they had gone to speak to the governor of New Mexico at that time, and they were denied access into the Pueblo because they had been uh, turned into uh, land grants, and those lands were already given to heirs of some of the Spanish colonists in today's area. So it was very unfortunate, you know. That was something agreed upon before the movement to Jemez. Uh, by the governor at that time. So after a couple of generations, you know, they were no longer allowed. So, but those people that came to Hamas, those ancestors of the Pecos that arrived here in Hamas, that refuge, sought refuge, became a part of Hamas, and that's how all of the blood then mixed again, how it was before the great, great migration from the north. So that's how I mean, we're all blood related right now. We all have Hamas and Pecos blood. That's how, I mean, that's why, you know, a lot of times people ask, where do these people go? I mean, we're just right other side of the, the mountains. We're here. And we can best interpret, like I said earlier, how Pecos lived because 
that's how we lived. We both had uh, identical way of life, you know, religion, our way of life, it was identical. They, you know, we had medicinal societies, they had medicinal societies, they had war societies, they had war societies. You know, even when Coronado arrived in that area, there was, what, population of 2,000, and there was about 500 men, warriors. That's how powerful they were, very powerful. So, I mean, so that's why, you know, we have this connection still. We're all related. We all have Pecos blood and Hamas blood. This long, rich history of occupation in the upper Pecos Valley attracted the interest of archaeologists in the early 1900s. Jim Bradley was director of the Peabody Foundation for Archaeology from 1990 to 2001 and recounts how American archaeologist Alfred Vincent Kidder first came to Pecos. Kidder was a Harvard PhD, uh, bright young guy from a Boston family who had learned about stratigraphic excavation uh, as a grad student and had learned about this in the Middle East, uh, especially when uh, sites called tells were excavated. A, a tell is a, a site that was occupied for thousands and thousands of years. And as buildings fell down and as trash accumulated, basically these mounds grew up and, uh, and they were called tells. And what people were beginning to understand is if you excavate these and you start at the top, that's going to be the most recent. And as you go down, you're going to get older and older and older stuff. Now, today we'd say, duh, why is this news? But it was news. And it meant when you excavated a site, you didn't just burrow in from the side because you, you just have a mush of things. So Kidder was really impressed with this. And he said, you know, we need to do something like that over here. And a great place to do that would be in the Southwest where it's dry and where sites were occupied for a long period of time. And so he spent some time looking around out there and, and he, he found Pecos and he said, what is interesting is he wrote a proposal to the trustees of Phillips Academy in 1915. Uh, and the museum, now the Institute, still has this handwritten document and it's just amazing because it is so clear in its intent. Kidder knew exactly what he, what he wanted to do, and he spent the next 14 years doing it. And not, and they, so that's the first part that's remarkable. The second part that's remarkable is that he said, you know, this is not a one-man show. This is not a one-museum show. This is something where you need to bring people in. And as a result, he began the Pecos conferences, which sort of set the standard for how scientists, environmental specialists, folklore specialists, anybody who has an interest in this site, how you get them together to share their information and you know, come up with a more coherent understanding, not just of the kinds of pottery that they used, but who was on that site and why were they on that site and how did that site change over time? So in many ways, uh, the Kidder's work at Pecos, and I, I would argue, and I think many would agree, that was the foundation of scientific archaeology. Jim. 
Jeremy Moss is the Chief of Resource Stewardship and Science, as well as the Park Archaeologist at Pecos National Historical Park. He explains for us how Kidder's work at Pecos had a major impact on the field of archaeology, facilitating a transition from a hobby into a science. Uh, Kidder excavated about 12 to 15 percent of the site. He established a site and regional chronology. Uh, he also identified the building sequences at Pecos Pueblo, which helped interpret the growth of the Pueblo and the cultural history. Uh, he excavated and partially reconstructed the Spanish Colonial Mission Church as well. Um, throughout his work, he was able to study the changes in pottery styles and types really develop uh, a ceramic typology for the Rio Grande Valley that's still used today. And he's able to do that by using concepts from uh, stratigraphy and ceramic seriation by studying changes in pottery style within the soil layers in the trash midden or discard pile at Pecos with the idea that the pottery that's at the bottom of the pile is older than the, the pottery on top. And you can look at these changes through time to help relatively date uh, sites, archaeological sites within the region. At the time, a lot of archaeologists were grappling um, with trying to understand how sites throughout the Southwest related to each other because there was uh, no absolute dating at that time. So there was no C14 dating or tree ring dating not been developed yet either. So Kidder really wanted to find a place uh, where he could look at the, the full range of Pueblo cultural development um, from prehistory to Spanish contact. And he thought he found that at Pecos. Unfortunately, he found that the cultural sequence was only 700 years, which is actually pretty large. <laughs> uh, but he, he was able to contribute uh, to this larger body of study and literature uh, within the Southwest related to the building of cultural chronologies. Um, and he really developed one of the first cultural chronologies called the Pecos classification for the Southwest. And Pecos was one of the places that contributed to that. Alfred Kidder began his excavations at Pecos in 1915, and they continued off and on through 1929. There were many positive things that came out of his work, but the long-term ramifications of those excavations had unintended consequences. He collected pottery, stone axe heads, metates, pipes, flutes, and other artifacts from Pecos. He also uncovered the remains of almost 2,000 individuals from the upper Pecos Valley. It should be noted that Kidder was not looking to dig up burials. However, the burial practices of the Pecos people included burying their dead inside the trash middens as well as inside first floor rooms in the Pueblo. This was done to keep the ancestors close, an important cultural practice. It was also an easier method of burial, as the bedrock at Pecos Pueblo is very close to the surface, which makes digging difficult. When burials were found, Kidder would collect the individuals along with the funerary objects found with them. Jim Bradley, who was director of the Peabody Foundation for Archaeology from 1990 to 2001, explains how those artifacts ended up all the way across the country in northeastern institutions. The Peabody had been founded in 1901 by Robert Singleton Peabody, who was the nephew of George Peabody, 
who was the great benefactor of the Peabody Museum at Harvard, Peabody at Yale, the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. And Robert, like his uncle George, was going to endow a museum. And the one he endowed was at Phillips Academy, which is a private secondary school in Andover, Massachusetts. The museum had actually, and I, I retitled it uh, the Peabody Museum of Archaeology uh, instead of the foundation because, frankly, I got tired of getting requests from other people for money, and that's really not what the intent was. The intent was to be a teaching institution uh, for students at Andover to introduce them to new sciences such as archaeology. And Robert Peabody himself was an avid avocational archaeologist. This was back in the days when you just dug sites up and recording was eh, maybe okay. Uh, it was just growing. Archaeology was growing from a collecting uh, business into a science where when you excavate a site, you destroy it. And therefore, the burden is on you to record as much as you can possibly record because otherwise, you're not going to know what the story of this site was. Now, there are two institutions involved in this story that have Peabody in the name. Jim, who we just heard from, worked at the Peabody Foundation for Archaeology, today called the Robert S. Peabody Museum for Archaeology at Phillips Andover Academy. The other Peabody in this story is the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University. From here on out, we will refer to them as the Peabody at Andover and Peabody at Harvard. Most of what Kidder excavated in the Upper Pecos Valley was shipped to the Peabody at Andover and the Peabody Museum at Harvard. This included pottery, tools, weapons, sacred objects, and the remains of human individuals. Alfred Kidder was working for the Phillips Andover Academy during his excavations in the Upper Pecos Valley. However, part way through his work, he began sending the excavated individuals to the Peabody Museum at Harvard instead of Andover. Michelle Morgan is the curator of the Osteology and Paleoanthropology Collection at the Harvard, Harvard Peabody and the senior osteologist. She explains how this happened due to a relationship between Kidder and Ernest Hooten, an American physical anthropologist. So this um, happened really because of the connection between Alfred Kidder um, and Ernest Hooten. So Kidder was a graduate student at Harvard um, when Hooten joined the faculty in 1913. And then Kidder began directing excavations at Pecos in, or in the upper Pecos Valley um, in 1915. And then a few years later, invited Hooten to collaborate on the project. Um, and in fact, Hooten went out there in the summer of 1920. Um, so beginning in 1919, um, the human remains were transferred from the Peabody Museum in Andover to the Peabody Museum at Harvard. And then subsequently, um, the excavated human remains were shipped directly to um, Harvard after each field season. In addition to the 1,922 individuals that would be repatriated from the Harvard Peabody, individuals would also be repatriated to the Pueblo of Jemez from the state of New Mexico 
and the National Park Service. When Pecos Pueblo became a state of New Mexico historic site in 1935, and later a national monument within the National Park Service in 1965, the excavations continued, though on a much smaller scale. Jeremy Moss from Pecos National Historical Park elaborated for us in an interview. Other excavations that occurred at Pecos uh, did disturb or uncover some human remains, some, some individuals that had been buried in the past. But there really wasn't a whole lot of large-scale excavation after Kidder. Before the National Park Service, when the site was uh, being managed by the state of New Mexico, uh, they did do some minor excavations within the Pueblo, including one of the kivas that was reconstructed around that time in the 1930s. And then they also excavated extensively in the Spanish colonial convento in order to expose walls for interpretation so that visitors would have something to see over by the church. Uh, other work done by the Park Service later was primarily in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Um, most of that work was associated with utility lines or buildings, you know, creating infrastructure for the National Park Service site so that, you know, people would have uh, facilities to use when they come, come to Pecos. Uh, there was some excavations that were targeted to certain research questions, uh, but a lot of them were responses to inadvertent discoveries of uh, cultural material, sometimes uh, the inadvertent exposure of individuals or burials uh, that then became uh, part of the NAGPRA process later. Today, it is legally required to consult with affiliated tribal groups prior to any sort of work that will cause ground disturbance at the park. In Alfred Kidder's time, it was not. Kidder had not consulted or notified the Pueblo of Jemez about his excavations, nor had he asked permission to remove the buried individuals or objects from the site. Joshua Madalena, a Jemez tribal councilman, offers his perspective as a Pecos descendant on Kidder's work. I know a lot of archaeology uh, and the taking of artifacts happened or they were stolen because you know the, the Western society felt one day these natives are it's going to be going to they're going to go into extinct. So they wanted to save whatever they could save. But I think it was poor research or no research research at all with Bandelier and Kidder that we had descendants here in Hamas. You know, you know that you know they had documentation in Santa Fe, in the office of the governors. They had documentation there. You know, all these archaeological uh, research wasn't done, and here they considered themselves PhDs. You know, I was had a problem with that. So just exhuming our ancestors, I have a problem with that because of lack of research. I always had a problem. And I never forgive Kidder, you know. The work of Alfred Kidder at Pecos, with his use of stratigraphy, the development of the Pecos classification, and launching the Pecos conferences, has been invaluable to the field of archaeology. But his removal of individuals during the excavations at Pecos and their subsequent transfer to museums and institutions far from their original resting places was a deep loss to the people of Jemez and a wound they would carry for decades.
Join us next time on Hollowed to Hallowed Ground as we discuss the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and the role it played in the 1999 repatriation of individuals and objects to Jemez Pueblo. Mm-hmm.